0: This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. For more information, visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Adam Camp teaches part two of the series titled Deacon, Service Leader. Let me pray for us. Father, it's your glory that we seek, and we seek to praise your name. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to praise you, to worship, Father. I pray that we would take it very seriously, Lord, and understand that it's our time as a corporate body of Christ that we get to do once a week, Father, to bring you praise and honor and glory. Thank you for that time. I pray, Lord, as we continue to worship you, as we study the Word of God, I pray you would guard our hearts and minds, Father. Take the the things that distract us and all the things that keep us from focusing on you and remove those things from us for the next few minutes, Father, so we, we can be attentive to your word and learn it and apply it to our lives. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we've spent the last several weeks all through the month of January studying the history of the Bible. We answered questions like, where does the Bible come from? How do we know the Bible is true? How do we know who wrote the Bible? How do we know that it's been accurately passed down from generation to generation? And through our study, of the history of the Word of God, and through the scriptural study that we've embarked on these last several weeks, we've arrived at some conclusions. The conclusions that we've arrived at is that the Word of God is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. It's inspired by God. Because it's inspired, it's inerrant. That means it's without error. Because it's inspired and it's without error, it becomes the authority in our lives. And if it's the authority in our lives and it's truly the Word of God, which it is, then it's sufficient. It's all we need to understand about Christ and His salvation and how to live our lives to bring Him honor and glory. Now, we took a step forward last week. We said that if the Bible's the inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God in our lives, which it is, Then it must also be the inspired and errant authoritative Word of God in the way that we live as a church. And if we're going to let the Bible guide us in the decisions we make as individuals, then we should also allow the Bible to guide us in the decisions that we make as a church. And so last week we started asking the question what does the Bible teach about our deacons? And we started last week by examining Acts chapter 6 and we we pulled several things from the text. I want to remind you of those things this morning very quickly in case you weren't here last week. The things that we learned from Acts chapter 6, number one, God called deacons to be servants. The word deacon in the Greek actually means service. God called deacons to serve. Secondly, God called deacons to be spiritual leaders. Thirdly, God called deacons to protect the pastor so that the pastor can spend his time focusing on the Word of God and focusing on prayer. And the fourth thing we learned from Acts chapter 6 is that God called deacons to spread the Word. Now, I answered the question last week that some people ask and continue to ask, and the question is this. I thought deacons were called to lead the church and to make the decisions to be kind of like a deacon board. My answer last week to that question was this. Deacons are called to lead, but they're called to lead in a little bit of a different fashion than some people think. They're called to lead in service. They're called to lead spiritually. They're called to lead in promoting unity. They're called to lead in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we make the distinction about kind of how some people understand the deacon ministry and how the Bible understands the deacon ministry, we say this, as we said last week. We've got to make decisions based on the Word of God. It's very clear. We've got to do that in our own lives personally. We've got to do that as a church And so because of what we've learned last week and because of what we're going to learn this week and because of what our deacons have been working on the last several months, understanding exactly what the Bible says about who a deacon should be, based on those things, the deacons have written a deacon covenant. It's right here before you this morning. Now, when you came in this morning, you should have got a copy of that. If you didn't get a copy, I gave you an opportunity a few minutes ago. If you still don't have a copy, shame on you, right? You should have gotten one by now. If you don't have one still, though, I'd be happy to let you get up and go grab one. If you need one, raise your hand. Maybe you missed that portion of the scripture, of of the sermon. I want everybody to have a copy because we're going to read it here in just a few minutes. And I want you to have a copy you can take home with you. But at the end of the service this morning, all the deacons are going to come and they're going to sign this covenant for several reasons. Number one, I want to set the bar high at Rosemont Baptist Church. I want to set the bar high with accountability and understanding exactly what the Bible has taught us to do. But I also want to do it because it's going to show the people of this church that the deacons are serious about following the Word of God. We're serious about figuring out exactly what the Word of God teaches. We're serious about making that very evident and clear to people. And we're serious about putting our signatures on it so that you and the deacons themselves can hold each other accountable for everything God's called them to be. And so we started last week studying deacons in Acts chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles this morning, I want you to open to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, there there are two major portions of Scripture that talk about diggings. These are not the only ones. There are two major portions. Acts 6 we looked at last week. This morning we're going to focus on 1 Timothy 3. I'm not there yet. Go ahead and back that off if you would, that slide, and go back to the first one. I I should have given you heads up. That's my fault. Because before I get to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8, I want to give a little bit of summary of 1 Timothy chapter 3, the whole chapter. So if you got your Bibles and you're taking a look, I want to Talk just for a second about this third chapter in the book of 1 Timothy being divided into two different sections. If you're looking at your Bible, you have your Bible, and I always want to encourage you to bring your Bible to services, but verses 1 through 7 talk about the qualifications of an overseer. Verses 8 through 13, which is going to be the focus of our our study this morning, talks about the qualifications of being a deacon. But before we get to the second part of 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 and make a couple of comments to help you understand in context what we're getting at this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says this, here is a trustworthy saying, this is Paul writing to Timothy, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, if you were to go on and read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-7, through 7, you would see that those first several verses give qualifications for a man who feels called to be an overseer. Now, I want you to understand something about this word overseer. The word overseer is interchangeable in Scripture with several other titles. When you see the word overseer used, you can interchange it with three other words. Elder, pastor, or bishop. So the word overseer... Pastor, elder, and bishop all mean the same thing. They're used in different contexts. They're used in different portions of the Scripture. But they're interchangeable with each other. Now, a great passage of Scripture that proves that point. You don't have to flip there, but I want you to mark it down. You can read it later. It's First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. On this, In this, these two verses, Peter is going to use these four different titles that I just mentioned to you. Here's what it says. He says, To the elders among you, there's the word elder, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Now verse 2, he says to the elders, be shepherds, that's the word for pastor, okay? Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, which is also the same word we use for bishop. So in 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter uses the word elder, He uses the word for pastor. He uses the word overseer, which is also the word for bishop. So we can say those four titles, elder, pastor, bishop, and overseer, are interchangeable. Now, when we begin to think about the model of the New Testament church, and we begin to try to figure out exactly how God calls us to govern ourselves, this isn't a sermon on church governance. We'll do that one day. This is a sermon very specifically on deacons, but I wanted you to understand before we move into this realm a little bit of background that there are two offices within the New Testament church that the the Bible commands us to have. One is deacon, which we'll talk about this morning. The other is the pastor or the elder or the bishop or the overseer. Now, some churches use different designation for that pastor-elder role. Most Southern Baptist churches use the phrase or the word pastor. Presbyterian churches would use the word Elder. Other denominations may use the word bishop. It's kind of the same idea and really the only discussion and the only debate when we begin to talk about church governance is the number of elders. Some people would argue within the Presbyterian church and other denominations that you need a plurality of elders. You need more than one. Most Southern Baptist churches argue that you need a single elder who's the pastor. It's simply a matter of debate based on these verses. What does God call us to do? Now I would argue that you can make a pretty solid case for both arguments. And depending on the person you listen to, you'd probably say, yeah, that that person makes a lot of sense. And you listen to the counter-argument, you say, that person makes a lot of sense. We're not here this morning to discuss the role of plurality of elders versus a single elder. But I wanted you to understand very clearly in the Scripture that there are only two offices. There's the office of pastor or elder or the term that you use there. And there's the office of deacon. Now this morning, we're going to focus on that office of deacon like we did last week. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, and you're already open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's begin this morning by reading verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise. Now, if you wanted to kind of make a little note there, he's already given the qualifications for an overseer in the first part of this chapter, remember? He said there are men that need to be above, respect, above reproach and men of respect and men of integrity. So he begins now verse 8. Deacons likewise, just like the overseers, Are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. Then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious, talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Y'all can just underline that four or five times, highlight it, put stars. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Moving on. Verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to make an argument from this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to back this up here in just a second in verse 8. I'm going to argue that these are not only qualifications to become a deacon, but these are qualifications that a deacon must maintain if he's going to remain a deacon. Okay? They're not only qualifications that we kind of look at on the front end of the process, but they should be qualifications that we look at throughout the process. If a man, for whatever reason, violates one of these principles in Scripture, I would argue, scripturally, he should no longer be allowed to be a deacon. Now, let's take a look at verse 8 and let's pull some truths from this Scripture. If last week Acts chapter 6 was an examination of how the deacon should act within the context of the church... 1 Timothy chapter 3 is a study of their character and their qualifications. There are several things we can learn. Look at verse 8 again. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. The first thing I want you to understand this morning from this passage of Scripture is we understand the characteristics of a deacon is that deacons must be worthy of respect. Deacons must be worthy of respect. Now, 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, Paul gives us kind of a blanket statement here. If you wanted to summarize the deacon ministry, and you wanted to summarize exactly who a deacon should be, then you could summarize that very simply by saying a deacon should be a man worthy of respect. But look at the phrase that Paul uses here. I want you to notice the way he uses this term. He says deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect. You see that? This is important to understand. Here's what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say deacons should have been or once were men of respect. Paul doesn't say deacons will be or in the future should be men of respect. Paul says very clearly that the deacons are to be. That's current, right? So I would argue based on the way that Paul phrases that and the words that Paul uses here, that deacons must continually live their lives in such a way that shows that they are respectful men among those that they serve. So we start asking the question, how can a deacon be a man worthy of the call? How can a deacon maintain respect and be a man of integrity? Look what Paul says in verse 8. He gives us three reasons to kind of back this up and three areas to kind of focus on. Men are to be worthy of respect, not sincere, excuse me, sincere or not double-tongued. They shouldn't be lying. They should be not indulging in much wine. And they should not pursue dishonest gain. So Paul says that the foundation here is that they need to be men worthy of respect. How does that happen? Well, it happens by the way they conduct themselves. They don't need to be liars, right? They don't need to be drunkards. They don't need to pursue dishonest gain. Because if we begin to think about the world and the way we respond to people, we don't respect men who lie, do we? If you've ever met somebody who you know is lying to, your respect for that person falls tremendously, doesn't it? It only takes one time for somebody to tell you a lie, and you lose a lot of respect for that person, right? Paul says if we're going to be men worthy of respect, we've got to be sincere. Paul says that we can't indulge in much wine. We don't don't respect men who are drunkards, do we? We don't respect men who go out and and, and party and live a lifestyle that's unbecoming of Christ. We don't respect those kind of men. We don't respect the man in business who who pursues dishonest gain, do we? We don't respect those types of people. So Paul said if you're going to be a deacon... You are to be a man worthy of respect. That's continually living your life in such a way that brings honor and glory to Christ. If we wanted to summarize man of respect, we could say very simply that deacons are men of integrity. Now, you've probably heard this phrase before, hadn't you? It takes a lifetime to build integrity, but you can lose it when? In one stupid act, right? Or one single moment. Now, I'm going to prove this to you. I'm going to prove that one moment in your life can ruin really a lifetime worth, worth of achievement. I'm going to say one name to you. Now, some of you are not going to have any idea who I'm talking about. That's okay. I'll explain it in a minute. How many of you know the name Bill Buckner? Raise your hand. Four, five, eight, ten. That's great. Any women know the name Bill Buckner? I told Amy last night. She remembered. I'm proud of her. Proud of her for doing that. Bill Buckner was a first baseman for the Boston Red Sox. A little bit of baseball history for you. Now, Bill Buckner was a great player. He was an all star. He won the batting title one year, batted in over 1,200 runs. That's a lot. Career batting average of almost 300 for major league first baseman. That's pretty impressive. Bill Buckner was a great baseball player, played 15 years in the major leagues. But for all of his accomplishments, Bill Buckner will be remembered for one moment. Those of you who are baseball fans will remember it very well. 1986 World Series and New York Mets. Boston Red Sox were leading three games to two. Bottom of the tenth inning, a simple ground ball to Bill Buckner, he goes to field it, and the ball goes right between his legs. The win and run scores for the Mets. They win game six. They go on to win game seven and win the 1986 World Series. Bill Buckner, for all of his achievements, will be remembered for that one moment. Google Bill Buckner when you get home, just for fun. Go to Wikipedia and read. It'll say so. I read it last night. It read something like this. You know, it lists a couple of his accomplishments, and then it says, but for all of his accomplishments, and it tells the story of what he did, right? There's a famous bridge in, in, in Boston, the Bunker Hill Bridge, and they said for years after that, people, because it had, it, had, it looked like, it almost looked, when you looked at it, like a person standing, and had two Ys, like a leg and a torso. They named it the Bill Buckner Bridge, because the cars could just roll under it and nobody would ever touch them. <laughs> That's what they called it, it's true. Now, the point of that story is that one moment can ruin a lifetime of achievement, right? This guy was a great baseball player. He'll be remembered for that one moment. Deacons, men especially, let me remind you of something. You can work a lifetime to achieve things and you can lose it all in one stupid moment. you understand that? Many men have. Paul says the deacons are to be at all times. Men worthy. Of respect. Men that maintain character and maintain integrity. So Paul gives us this blanket statement men worthy of respect. This is kind of the foundation upon which he's going to build throughout the remainder of this chapter. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to notice he uses the word must four different times in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. Verse 9, he uses the word must. Verse 10, he uses the word must. Verse 12, he uses the word must two different times. And those four different ideas are the way that Paul is going to build upon this foundation of exactly what a man worthy of respect looks like. So let's look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, not only should they be men worthy of respect, but verse, verse 9 says this, they must, there's that word, they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Here's the second point we make. Not only should a deacon be a man worthy of respect, but a deacon must hold to the deep truths of the faith. Deacons must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. And there are two very interesting things in this passage of Scripture I want to point out. Number one is the phrase Paul uses, deep truths of the faith. It's a very interesting phrase to me because as I I read this phrase, I think about two different people. The first person I think of is kind of this nominal Christian. Some of you will find yourself in this category. A nominal Christian is the person who occasionally reads the Bible, not very often, occasionally prays, maybe when everything else is done and he's got a few minutes left in the end of the day, or she's got a few minutes left in the end of the day, she spends some time praying, or he spends some time praying. The nominal Christian doesn't spend a whole lot of time during their week focusing on the things of God. They've got other things to do. They're busy at work, they're busy with school. They're busy with other things of life. And so when they've got some time left over, then they focus on the things of God. I kind of see this person in the category of almost like a nominal Christian. The things of God are not as important to them as they should be. And then I read this passage of Scripture and I think about a mature believer. A mature believer is very simply, as Paul says, somebody that understands the deep truths of the faith. Now this would be a person who would spend time praying, who would spend time studying the Word, who would spend time actually trying to figure out God's will for his life and how he should conduct himself and how he should live. Now, if you've never experienced the deep truths of Scripture, you're not really going to understand this. But if you've ever in your life experienced the deep truths of the faith, you'll understand exactly what Paul's talking about here, don't you? You understand the strength and the power and the love that comes from who Christ is in our lives. You understand that you can have joy in the midst of suffering. You understand that you can have hope in the midst of pain. You can understand that you can have peace that passes all understanding. A peace that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says if you're going to be a deacon, you must continually understand the deep truths of the faith. But Paul doesn't just say you need to know them occasionally. I love this part about this phrase. He uses the word hold, right? Paul says you must keep Hold of the deep truths of faith. Now, I think about somebody who's just clinging on to something for dear life. We had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago with our staff to go to Calvary Gardens to do a staff retreat. We do that every year in January. And we spend some time praying, some time talking, and spend a lot of time planning and looking ahead to the future and making some decisions about the direction of this church. And one of the things we did, kind of as a team-building exercise this year, is we did the high ropes course at Calvary Gardens. How many of you guys have done that ropes course at Calvary Gardens? Good, a few more than the last, okay, a couple of you, good. Stacy did, you, sh- you should ask Stacy about her experience. I'm just sad my camera died in the middle of it, it would have been worth watching. When we get up on this high ropes course, they strap you in, you know, you've got all this gear, so you're not going to fall, at least logically, you're not going to fall, but your body doesn't always understand that, right? And so you step out onto these different elements, they've got all these different elements you walk across, it takes about an hour and a half, and all these zip lines, and you're, you're 20 to 30 feet above the, the, the ground most of the time. And so I'm telling myself here, mentally, I'm not going to fall. I know that, right? And so you're clipping on, you know, you've got these, these carabiners, you've got to clip onto the guide wire and it protects you from falling. But there are all these things you've got to do as you walk through this course. And probably the most difficult one is you kind of step out and they've got these swings. You guys know what a rope swing looks like, the two ropes. And a two by four at the bottom that's about two feet long. And there's a rope swing, and then about three feet later, there's another rope swing. And, three, and this goes for about 25 or 30 feet. And so you've got to step out on that swing. And when you step, man, that swing's just, you know, and you've got to kind of steady yourself enough so you can step to the other rope swing. It's, very, it's, it's a very exhilarating experience. But I found myself, subconsciously, I didn't even know I was doing it, grasping onto that rope swing, right? I mean, I looked at one time and my, my hands were shaking. I was holding so hard. And I began to realize that what I was doing mentally, even though I didn't think about it, is I was holding on so tight I was barely putting any weight on my feet. That's true. I was kind of holding myself up. And I had to subconsciously kind of say, just calm down. You know, you're not going to fall. Just relax and, and, and let your feet kind of do the work instead of your hands. But I was clutching onto the thing almost for dear life. You should try it one time and see how you respond, right? But it's interesting to me as I I see this passage of Scripture and Paul talks about the man who holds, he keeps hold of the deep truths. I thought about that. And I asked myself the question, how many times do I hold to the Word of God and the deep truths of faith like I held to that rope? Not many. I mean, we hold to the things of the world like that, don't we? I'm going to hold on to my job because it brings me security. And there's good. Your job should bring you some security. God gave it to you as a blessing. I'm going to hold on to to my possessions or to my finances or I'm going to hold on to my intelligence Or I'm going to hold on to my social circle. Or I'm going to hold on to my education. I'm going to hold to all the things of the world. And we never consider the idea that we need to be holding to the deep truths of Scripture. That's what God commands us to do. He says if you're going to be a deacon, if you're going to be a man of God, if you're going to have integrity and you're going to be worth respect, you need to keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. I think that's a great picture for us as people in the church. I think that's a great picture for the leaders and the deacons of this church to understand this passage of Scripture. Keep hold to the deep truths of the faith. Now look at verse 10, what Paul does. He says, they must first be tested. Then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. The third thing we notice is we try to understand who deacons are and how they function. Thirdly, deacons must be tested. Not only to they be men worthy of respect, not only should they hold to the deep truths of faith, but they must be tested. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to understand something. It's been the practice of Rosemont Baptist Church since the beginning, and will continue to be the practice, that the men who are called to be deacons are first tested. Now, the way they're tested, one, is just in the day-to-day life of the church, right? We, we notice things. We see people. We observe leaders and men who are godly and men who are holding to the deep truths of Scripture and men who are respected and men who walk with integrity. There's a test that goes on day after day after day as we watch these people grow in their faith. And then when the church body recognizes that that person is a leader, that that person should be called out to be a deacon, then that person is brought before a group, a group of leaders in our church that actually test him at that moment and ask him specific questions. To be sure he's a man of integrity. To be sure he should be a man that serves in our church. But Paul says, you can't just let anybody do it, right? This is one of the two offices of the New Testament church. It's a big deal. I've called men to be deacons. They've got to be men worthy of respect. They've got to be men who hold to the deep truths of Scripture. And when the time comes, they must be tested. Now look at verse 11. In the same way... Their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And I told the first service, I am not dumb enough to preach against a deacon's wife. So we're moving on. Verse 12. Just moving right on. <sighs> Y'all laugh, but we're moving on to verse 12 here. A deacon... Must be. We'll come back to that maybe another sermon. A deacon must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household. Well, the fourth thing I want you to understand as we walk through this passage of Scripture, the qualifications for a deacon, the deacon must be the husband of one wife. Now, this is an issue that's debated and has been debated for centuries. Now, my point here this morning isn't to delve into exactly what this means. I think when we go through the process of ordaining deacons in the near future... We'll teach through this passage of Scripture, and we'll spend some real time understanding what it says. But you could go to ten different churches this morning, and you could get ten different answers about what this means. Some churches see it one way, some churches see it other, other churches see it even a third way. Scholars have written about it, people have debated it for centuries. It's been the practice of Rosemont Baptist Church since the beginning to not ordain men who have been divorced. Again, my process this morning and my time this morning is is, is not going to be given to explaining and trying to understand exactly what this means. But I'll tell you, there's some common ground I want you to understand. No matter what church you go to, no matter how they feel about this passage of Scripture, they would affirm one thing. A man who is a called deacon, if he's going to remain a called deacon and remain trustworthy and remain a man of respect, he should very simply be faithful to his wife. We can find common ground there. See, we don't respect the man who cheats on his wife, do we? We don't see a man who who plays this game or does whatever with some other woman and think that's a man of integrity. So I want to caution you men in general, but deacons specifically, be faithful to your wife. Treat her with love and respect. Honor her for who she is in your marriage. Paul says, if you're going to be a man worthy of respect, you need to be faithful to your wife Ephesians 5.25, right? We we studied that when we walked through the book of Ephesians. You love her and you protect her and you provide for her. And ultimately, you give yourself up for her. Your very life is necessary. Paul says, if you're going to be a man worthy of respect, you honor your wife. Fifthly, look at verse 12. I need to finish up this morning. A deacon must be the husband of one wife and he must manage his children and his household well. The fifth thing I want you to notice from this passage of Scripture is that deacons must manage children and their household well. Deacons must manage their children and their household well. Now, it's very interesting to me that Paul puts that little explanation on the end and that little adjective. Not only are they supposed to manage their household, not only are they supposed to manage their children, but they should do it how? Well. Now if I went around to the world and I read the the kind of self-help books of the world and I asked this question, what does it look like for a man to manage his family and his household well? I'd get a lot of different answers, wouldn't I? A lot of people think that your household is managed well by what you provide for your family. And that's extremely important. Don't misunderstand me. If God has blessed you, then you in turn should bless your family. That's exactly what God says. You shouldn't be ashamed about doing well in your career and blessing your family. But that's not the foundation of what makes a successful family. Some families think they're successful by the social circles they run in. If they're more popular with a certain group of people or with a group of friends, and they feel successful. There's nothing wrong with having good friends. Other people think if my children do well, then I'm successful, right? If my children go on and get a good education and get a good job, then I'm going to be successful. There's nothing wrong with your children getting a good job and getting a good education. But here's the point. We shouldn't seek success in the eyes of the world, should we? All those things are good and, and there's nothing wrong with those things if we keep them in the right context. But ultimately, what does the Scripture teach about a successful family? How is your family successful based on the word Of God. I think Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 5, 6, and 7 give us a very clear picture. You don't have to look it up now, but you can write it down and read it later. In fact, I'm going to be preaching a lot about this in our family series. But here's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 5, 6, and 7. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Now listen to verse 7. Here's a successful family. You ready dads? You ready moms? Impress them on your children. You want to be successful? Teach your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. If they get a good education, great. If they make a lot of money, great. If they're successful in the world, great. If they don't have a foundation in Jesus Christ, they've lost it all, right? What good is it for man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? How many instances have we heard of, uh, of actors, politicians, sports celebrities, and, and stars that are extremely successful in the eyes of the world, right? They win awards, they win championships, they make millions upon millions upon tens of millions of dollars. And we look at those people and we think, wow, they must be pretty successful. And then we hear about the story of their lives as our deacons come in. You guys, come on in. <laughs> They're going to sign the covenant at the end. And we look at the lives of these people who've been successful in the eyes of the world and they're train wrecks of a marriage, right? Their children are wrecks. There are all sorts of drug abuse and and, and substance abuse problems. That They're broke oftentimes after their careers. How many times do we have to see these examples to understand that the way the world perceives success is not the way we need to perceive success? How many times will it take us to understand true success is found in Scripture when we teach our family to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, with all their minds, and with all their strengths. But yet I look across kind of the landscape of our culture, and I look across the landscape of even a lot of churches, and I see men who have abdicated this responsibility. They've given it up. They either don't have the time, or the effort, or the desire, or the ability, or you fill in the blank, they're not doing it at home. And they do everything they can to be successful in the eyes of the world and absolutely nothing to be successful in the eyes of Christ. If a man is going to maintain his integrity, if he's going to be worthy of respect, he needs to lead his family and his children well. Now, there are five things we've seen this morning. Let me just summarize. If a man going to be a deacon, he should be and continue to be worthy of respect. He should hold on to the deep truths of the faith. He must be tested, he must be the husband of one wife, and he must manage his family well. Now we spent last week and this week spending a lot of time studying Acts chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3. When we went on our deacon's retreat several months ago, we spent a lot of time at the deacon's retreat opening the word of God, studying Acts chapter 6, studying 1 Timothy chapter 3. From that study, the deacons have developed a family covenant, excuse me, a deacon covenant they're going to sign this morning in your presence. Now, I've asked all of our deacons to be here for this. I, I think a couple are out of town. Most are here. But I'm going to ask at this time, Russell, if you'll come up. Russell Cleveland is the chairman of our deacons. I've asked Russell to read this covenant, pray for this covenant, and then I'm going to say a, word, a few words before we sign it together. Thank you for joining us for a new podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us again for future podcasts. God bless you.